Thanks, Mike. Um, I, I also kind of had a picture I wanted to share with everyone. Um, it's kind of related a bit to a personal story, but recently Beth and I, we bought a jasmine plant and um, we bought a trellis and, and leaned this jasmine plant you know, on, um, the si along the side of our house. And it's a pretty plant, um, and you know, uh, our landlord saw it, and our landlord said, "Hey, I don't, I don't know if you realize, but jasmine's actually a really invasive plant. And years ago, on our own home, you know, it actually they they can go, you know, under the home, they can get within the within the you know wood boards and such, and um, they're they're a pain in the butt if you if you don't take care of them and just let them grow wild. And I don't know that just that image is on my heart right now because I, I guess the message I, I wanted to share is, you know, there are things that we are attracted to as beautiful as a jasmine plant and we don't realize how invasive they are. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't know what that means. I just, you know, it's just something on my heart to think about. Um, you know, just, just the things that, that we're attracted to um, as beautiful as they are, are not always meant to be leaned right up against our house. That's all I got. Sorry, is that the jasmine plant like is totally dead. It's like it's died. Like it died within a month. So maybe that's even true. It's dead. I threw it out. I don't know if I like that that part of the story. Um, yeah, I don't know. So if somebody can interpret that for me, um, if that means I need prayer, please come pray for me. Um, anyway, for we just want to welcome you. My name's Mike. Um, this is my wife, Beth. Um, we normally don't do this shtick, but it's happening this morning. Um, just want to welcome everybody. We're so glad you're here. If you're if you're new or newer, um, this is just such a family, and we just hope we just hope this feels like home, and that you you think about making it home. Well, come. Welcome to Coastlands. We get to have fun here. It's one of the things that's interesting about this place is we can, particularly when Beth leads worship, something about the, the piano and just the way that, that she leads, but, but we'll, we'll come into these moments where there's just like this weightiness to the room. Did you feel that this morning? There's like this gravity to the room, this, this weight, and it's not heavy in a negative way. It's just like this thickness, like, ooh, okay, there's something rich here, and we're sitting in that. And then the next minute, we're talking about plants like wrapping around your house and how that, and, but sometimes we feel like we're kind of all over the place. <laughs> but it's such a beautiful thing. We love being a part of this family. I was, I was reminded recently how, well, yeah, somebody was commenting how we actually started on time-ish today for the first time. Like we don't, we don't know what our, our start time is. And so we, we were like, hey, let's start at 10 today and see what happens, and, and all seven of us um, just, just launched into worship at like 10 o'clock. But I wanted to remind us of something that I was thinking about as we did that, because some of you don't know what time to come, right? Because you come early and it's just kind of sit here awkwardly, like looking around, waiting for the coffee to be ready. But and then some of you come in like just on time and we've, we're three songs in. You're like, I don't know what to do with this place. I don't know what to expect. But the beautiful thing is it doesn't matter what time you come because we're not starting a worship service at 10 or at 10.15 or at 10.20 or 10.03. And I was reminded of Revelation chapter 4 
and how in Revelation 4 it's this picture of this lamb on a throne. I'm getting all heavy on you all of a sudden. But. So Revelation 4 is this picture of a lamb on a throne and there are these saints and these elders around the throne and they're laying down their crowns before the throne and they're singing holy, holy, holy. And often we think that because that's in the book of Revelation that that's something future, that that's something we're going to see and experience someday. But actually that's a picture of what's going on constantly and has been going on for eternity. And so whether we show up at 10.03 or 10.15, we're joining into something that has already been going on for millennia. And we get caught up and swept up in that. And that's why when we come to these worship times and we feel that heaviness, it's because we're getting swallowed up into that reality. And then when we kind of break out of that and start laughing, we're laughing in the midst of that reality. That there's this lamb on the throne that is the center of everything and we're reminded. We come here to be reminded that this is the center of the universe, this Lamb and the Father and the Holy Spirit. Isn't that nice? Doesn't it kind of take the pressure off of what happens here in this morning? It takes a lot of pressure off of me. Because I'm like, all right, what's going on there? All right, well, let's just throw ourselves into it. So that's what we come here to do on Sunday mornings. Uh, in a little bit, I want to give an opportunity for us to share different words, pictures. I feel like there's, there's some things that the Spirit's been doing and saying to this group that I want to leave space for. Last Sunday, I kind of just launched and just, threw, I, I gave, like I said, I told you, more bullet points in one message than we're going to have, like, the first two years combined, right? And I wasn't kidding, was I? We talked about islands and waves and different ways that we attach to people and the way that carries over into God and our relationship with God. And we talked about anchors. And we talked about how Jesus anchored his life, his sense of well-being, his sense of trust. He anchored that to the Father so that even in his most powerful and poignant moment of pain, and I guess you could say, um, what's the word I'm looking for? When Jesus is in the garden, that point of pressure as all the weight of the world is coming down on him, he's still able to catch the eyes of the Father and say, Father, not my will but yours be done, even if it leads to my death. I trust my life to you to the point where I will even let you take it to the point of death, if that's what needs to happen. Jesus was anchored to the Father in trust and hope and love. And so what I want to talk about this morning, we're in this series called Living Loved, and at some point I'll tell you why we have a picture of my bird Charlie up there. He's pretty. He's beautiful. He's handsome. Sorry. He's handsome. Um, but this is Charlie, and at some point we'll talk about why we have him up there, but we've been talking about this series, Living Loved, and this reality that God has said these certain things about us. There's this truth to our being, and yet, at least for me, and I'm not sure, I'm guessing some of you can relate, that it often feels like the furthest thing from my experience, that there are these truths about me in Jesus and in the Father's eyes they are my reality, but often they seem so far from my experience. And often people will talk about the love of God, and it's, there's a sense of, well, you just have to believe it. The biggest problem is unbelief. And now it's like kind of flip the switch, you know, go from unbelief to belief. And we talked last week about, I don't think there's a switch. It's a journey that we go on of learning to be the beloved and live as the beloved of God. And so this morning I wanted to tell you a little bit about kind of my story and really rooted in this, this process, this journey of finding approval. What does it look like to live loved when it comes to how we live our lives? I mean, 
as Christians, we have these truths that we all know like the back of our hand, right? We, we say these things, like in Ephesians 2. It's for grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not on your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. How many of you have heard that a million times before? Right? How many of you have also had this happen? Maybe as a kid. So little Naomi's back there. This is such a tricky thing to talk about because it's embedded in the way our culture works and it's not something we can avoid. The problem is it becomes a problem when we transfer this to our relationship with God. What am I trying to say? So you're holding little Naomi and she's just kind of sitting there doing her thing or she's looking at you kind of quizzically trying to get a read on you. All right? And then all of a sudden she smiles and what do you do back? You smile back. And you start to tickle her or start to like get her to smile more. Now, is there anything wrong with that? No. But what does little Naomi start to learn about how to get affection and approval and to light people up and see that look in people's eyes? You smile. Now, do you see why I'm hesitant to go here? Because I'm not saying, the pastor said this morning, don't smile at babies. I'm, what, what was your takeaway from the message? Frown at Naomi when she smiles. Spank her, discipline her for smiling. No, but the thing is, we can't get away in our culture, it seems, from attaching our performance and our behavior from our sense of self-worth. Can anybody else relate to that? that it seems almost impossible to detach our sense of self-worth and our sense of well-being from our performance and our behavior. And so the question I want to ask is, what does that look like? What happens? And is there a way? Last week we talked about attachment. This week I want to talk about detachment. What would our lives look like if your sense of well-being was not related to the results or outcomes or your relationships? Would your life look any different? Now you see, on one hand, this is what often happens. This is what happened to me. On one hand, we get fed by these little tastes of success. It's easy to kind of get kicked into performance mode. And it never carries over into Christianity, right? There's never been anybody in ministry or, or in faith that has ever tried to kind of put on the face of, of being the good Christian. I know that doesn't happen, but let's just say in other realms it does. Um, we can maybe speak hypothetically. but So what happens is it's easy to get into this mode where it's like, okay, if I do this, if I do blank, then I get this result. I experience approval. I experience acceptance. I experience this sense of being worthwhile. And let me ask you this. When that comes through something external, maybe a, a success in work or an award you get or a kudos you get from somebody, how long does that really last you? Does that fill you for good, or does that just kind of give you a taste for something that you have to work even harder for the next time? So, on one side, we can move into this performance, drivenness, success-hungry mode that we kind of can become this bottomless pit of, I need the next thing, give me the next experience, give me the next piece of approval. Now, there's, I'm going to give a little aside here, I'm not... You don't want me to do any parenting seminars, but there's a fascinating book on parenting called Nurture Shock. Anybody familiar with that book? 
It's called Nurture Shock. And Nurture Shock, basically, in this book, they take all of our intuitive ways of parenting and they flip them over their head and say, yeah, we often think that it's right to do this. Well, think about it from this side. There's a chapter in Nurture Shock that was really challenging to me. And it was about, it's, the title of the chapter is The Inverse Power of Praise. And this is what it's talking about. It's talking about when our kid does something, they do well on a test, and we say something like, wow, you are so smart. You are so smart. Or they do something well on a soccer game. You are such a good player. They did tests to find out what happens when things like that were said. And do you know what they found? I'm giving you the whole chapter in kind of a really overly condensed version. You know what they found? The students that lived in this world of hearing constantly, you are so smart, or the athletes that heard you are so good, you know what they did? They stopped stepping up when faced with the challenge because they didn't want to put themselves at risk to prove those people wrong that they weren't as smart as their parents or their coaches or their teachers said they were. So those people that were given this general praise of you are so blank, they started to think, okay, well, I better keep that facade up. And so they shifted out of performance mode. They would often shift over here to I better not take any risks mode. Because what if I do this and I fail, and all of a sudden they find out that I'm not as smart as they think I am. So I better play it safe. Now, none of us ever do that in our Christianity, right? I'm sure none of us ever slide back and forth between performance mode, God, if I operate like this, you will love me and approve of me. Uh-oh, I don't feel like I'm going to do very well at that. And we find ourselves sliding back over here. Oh, I better not step into that because if I fail, then all of a sudden I'm going to be faced with the reality that my self-worth is not to the point I thought it was. Can anybody relate to anything on this spectrum here? This is the story of my life bouncing back and forth. Performance to fear of failure and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And we often find ourselves in not to such extremes, but we find ourselves somewhere on this spectrum. When we get in performance mode, what can happen is this fun word that, yeah, I guess, you could probably think of the people in your life, but how many of you have struggled with perfectionism? Or if it's not just right, then the wheels are going to come off. Right? Then things better, you better look out, you better watch out if things aren't just right in performance mode. And then anybody that gets in your way of things becoming perfect, they better look out. People have to start walking on eggshells around us. And so some of us, we move from perfectionist over here, and we start to have this sense of, okay, I know I should be making a contribution to the world. I know I should be doing this, but I can't bring myself to do it because I know what it feels like if I do that thing and it flops. So I better not even try. How many of you live in that mode? Where it's like, I better not try that thing because I hate that feeling of failure. Bink, 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 and we could just be running back and forth, running back and forth, running back and forth. See, what happens over here often when we get into this performance mode is we start to learn to play the game. See, I know this all too well, where you start to learn to know how to say the right things and, and um, do the right things, and we're not going to go into too many layers of this, but where our self-worth becomes attached to our popularity or our productivity or our performance. Three Ps, because I'm a pastor and I have to do that, right? That's me 
that's <laughs> me living here. Um, but that's, isn't that what often happens? It's like, well, who's accepting me? And what am I doing? And how does everybody feel about it? And it's so hard. We can live in this mode and you actually kind of feel it for a little while, but underlying it, there can be the sense of anxiety, the sense of angst, the sense of, well, what about next time if they don't come through? What if they don't respond well? And so it, it seems on the front, on the outside, that, that we're secure and confident, but underlying it is this profound insecurity. And then on the other side, we hold ourselves back from the world. We don't put ourselves out there because we're not sure what people are going to think. And so we kind of just live with a sense of, well, I don't want to let people ever know who I really am. And so we don't ever go there. Um, I wanted to take a minute, because I don't want to get in too much into my own story, because it's just embarrassing. But um, I wanted to show you. <laughs> yeah. I know these extremes really well. Um, look at what Jesus did. I love this story. So this is um, actually in my dream last night. In our, my dream last night, we lost Zach, our six-year-old. Again, like, <laughs> I was like, I just can't get away from losing him. Um, we've lost him a handful of times, and we found him. But so in the dream last night, we lost him again. I was like, I'm just getting way too familiar with this. Um, what would Freud say, right? But so, so this is a scene in Luke chapter 2 where Mary and Joseph actually lose the Son of God. We've talked about this, right? We did a series on the beauty and brilliance of Jesus and Jesus getting lost. And somebody wouldn't put Jesus ever in the lost category. But um, Jesus got lost and his parents are freaking out. It took them three days to find him. And so they finally find him in the temple. He's 12 years old and his mom comes and says, Hey, what have you been doing? What did you do to us? You're freaking us out. Listen, your father and I have been worried. We've been looking for you. And Jesus says, can you imagine? Like, put yourself in Mary's shoes for a moment, or Joseph's shoes. You're in utter panic because you lost your child. You've lost the Son of God. And this innocent little 12-year-old Jesus has the nerve to look at you and be like, why were you looking for me? Why were you so worried? Relax. Mom, you're being a control freak, right? Why were you looking for me? What a crazy response. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? As a 12-year-old, Jesus found this draw to be where he thought the father was, where he met with the father, to the point where he would utterly disappoint his parents, to the point of freaking them out, frustrating them, and making them look three days to find him. But they didn't understand what he said to them. Jesus went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. His mother cherished every word in her heart. This is what I want to land on. Jesus then matured, in other translations it says grew, in wisdom and years, and in favor with God and with people. It says that Jesus grew in favor with God and with people. Now, where I'm going with this is something that I'm still trying to sort out in my mind because on one level, it seems to be the most simple, the most common sense thing. And on another level, I don't get it. And so hopefully, you can help me get it this morning. But I want to fast forward. Uh, what would it be? 30 minus 12 is 18, right? So I want to fast forward 18 years in Jesus' life to the point of his baptism. We're all familiar with the dynamics of this scenario. 
but I want us to maybe look at it from a different angle. Now, John, Jesus' cousin, has been baptizing all these people, and he's, he's pretty um, worried about what people think. If you know the story of John the Baptist, he's very concerned with appearances and um, being that, that polite. What did somebody once said that they call him John the Baptist, but he would not be welcome at any Baptist lunches around the, the states today. But um, John the Baptist is not very uh, worried about what people think. And he's baptizing all these people, and it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. Now imagine this moment. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Now, we're familiar with those words, aren't we? And none of us are surprised to hear the Father saying that over Jesus and to picture the Spirit descending upon Jesus. It's verbal affection and physical affection. It's affirmation by the Trinity over the life of Jesus. The thing that I'm starting to come around to, though, I used to think that this was a very unique experience in the life of Jesus. I used to think that this was a kind of a one-off type thing that really launched him into ministry and set the stage for what he did. But what if actually... This was a reality that Jesus sat in constantly, and this just happened to be the most public example of the Father's affection that Jesus experienced on a constant basis. Because this wasn't just an experience for Jesus himself, but if you look in John chapter 1, it says that John the Baptist actually saw the dove descending upon Jesus. And that's how John the Baptist knew that Jesus was the one that he was waiting for, even though a little bit later he asks him, he sends his disciples, remember, to say, hey, are you the one? And You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. In Matthew 17, we find the same scenario happening. It's the scene where Jesus is up on the mountain with Moses and Elijah, and he's transfigured before them. Do you remember this scene? And it says that his clothes seemed bleached with the, the best bleach, and he's like radiant, white, glowing, kind of like the Jesus that most of us picture. Um, just this clean, transcendent, glowing Jesus. And Peter and a couple of other disciples are up on the hill, and they see this going on, and do you remember Peter's response? Peter's response is, ooh, this is a good thing. Let's hang out in all this glory. And so he says, hey, let's build three tabernacles. Let's build three tabernacles, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And Jesus doesn't have to say a word. You remember the response that Peter hears? The Father, with a booming voice out of heaven, interrupts Peter and says, 
This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, I don't know what kind of voice that was, whether it's kind of like a smiley, like, Peter, you are so adorable, or whether it's like angry, like, seriously, how dare you? I don't even know what Peter was really doing wrong, to be honest with you. It is funny, somebody once pointed out that Peter was the only apostle to be interrupted by all three members of the Trinity at some point in his life. It's like, that's, that's kind of who Peter was. He obviously was a little reckless with his words, with his life, right? But, so the father literally interrupts Peter mid-sentence, but the response is, the, the words the father says are, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Do what he says. Go where he wants to go. So what's the thing that's been shifting my thinking on all this? What's interesting to me is this scene right here, Luke chapter 3. This is 30 years into Jesus' life. He had been a carpenter, been um, apprenticed to his stepfather, Joseph, and he was about to launch into ministry. And you know, some people will talk about how um, this was done before Jesus had done any miracles, and this was the Father you know, affirming Jesus before he had done anything, and that this was the Father launching Jesus off into ministry. Um, I want to try to say this right, though. What if it's as simple as, what if it's as simple as Jesus' entire life, from birth to his time in the temple, to his time on the cross. Now, let me, let me pull back a little bit here. If Jesus' self-worth was attached to his performance, his success, his ability to um, create a successful ministry, how would he be feeling on the cross as he looks down and there's about three left? Did Jesus go off and create this successful ministry? At least at that point in time? We know that Jesus went around doing amazing things, miracles, raising people from the dead, and the blind would see. So here's what I'm trying to wrap my head and heart around, and I want to propose to you. And you're going to be like, duh. But for some reason, I'm thinking, wow, that's incredible. What if Jesus' entire life is going to the cross Every single miracle, every single word spoken, every single leper healed. Oh, by the way, if Jesus was worried about success, then why did every time he healed somebody, at least in the book of Mark, why does he tell them, shut up, don't tell anybody? If he was worried about building this big thing, right? He's always like, hey, be healed. No, go, keep your mouth shut. Don't say anything. Is it possible that every moment of Jesus' life, every table that he built, every person that he hugged, him looking down on the cross to, I'm guessing it was John, the apostle, and he says, hey, brother, your mom, take care of her. She's your mother now. Every blind person he healed, every demon he cast out, what if every single moment of Jesus' life was simply done into re as a response to this affection that he felt constantly flowing as the undercurrent of his life being Does that seem like the most obvious thing in the world? Can I say that again? Because when, when I encountered this, it was like I had struck gold that had been sitting in front of my face the whole time. 
What if every single moment of Jesus' life, every thought he thought, every word he said, every deed he did, what if every single one of those moments were simply responses to the undercurrent and flow of affection constantly coming to his heart from the fathers through the Holy Spirit? And what if it's really that simple? What might that mean for us? Because you notice that that's neither this over here. That's not my ministry needs to be successful and look like this or my job needs to be successful or I need to get this promotion or I need to have this relationship or I need to do this thing or, or get these people to like me. That's none of this over here. Yet it's not this either. It's not never stepping out. It's not holding yourself back. It's not taking risk. It's, it's not just kind of withholding all, of you are, all that you are or being afraid to put yourself out there, but it's somehow living this life that's constantly undergirded by profound pleasure coming from the Father's heart to His, that literally, I'm wondering, so think about this for a minute. Can you remember the last time someone looked you in the eyes and said something nice about you, that they, they love you, or that you mean a lot to them, or that they encourage you, they affirmed you? When's the last time, can you hold that, that moment in your mind for a minute, in your heart, when's the last time somebody affirmed you deeply? Do you have it in your mind? What happened inside of you when that happened? How many of you got tired and drained and demotivated? How many of you were just like, oh, again? Like Napoleon Dynamite, right? Why do I sound like Napoleon Dynamite or anything? But how many of you are like, stop telling me that? <laughs> stop telling me I'm special. Don't tell me I'm beautiful. Don't tell me that I have what it takes. Don't encourage me. Don't tell me that I've got the goods. Don't tell me I'm worthwhile. You're like, stop it. You're making me exhausted. What happens to us when someone sincerely, genuinely, specifically tells us the reality of who we are? How do you feel? What happens inside of you? How many of you feel like your shoulders get a little like, taller? Your face kind of changes. It goes from like to a little smile. Kind of you, you find a smile when it creeping up on it. Even if you are one of those really good, uh, what's it called, compliment deflectors, right? Even if you're one of those really good like, no, 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 it's all God. Bing, bing, just bounce it. It's all God. It's none of me. It's all God. Even if you're one of those really good compliment mirrors, you know, or deflectors, whatever, something inside of you wants to go, thank you. What's, where's Beth at? Beth does this little thing. It's the whole, she does it jokingly, but it's the whole, like, stop it, come on, stop it, come on. <laughs> yeah. It does something to us, doesn't it, when we realize who we are and when someone reminds us that we're the beloved. Is it possible that most of Jesus' life was living out of that reality? And then in times when he was challenged, frustrated, discouraged, needed wisdom, needed perspective, think about all the times that he went away to a quiet place to be by himself. Is it possible that that was Jesus stealing away, saying, Daddy, remind me, because I'm starting to forget. There's other voices. There's this jasmine plant <laughs> that's creeping around my heart, 
will you remind me who I am? And the next thing we know, he comes out full of life and energy and vigor because he tapped back into that source of the Father's affection. Am I making any sense? Is anybody else like me that this is so duh yet so like, <laughs> like I, I'm just, my head's like, come on now. How could you not see that? And my heart's like, what if you could really get that? What if you could really get that? What would life look like? What if the next time you had an argument, you didn't need to try to prove yourself right because you knew that you were right as a person, that who you are is right, and that you didn't need to always be right? What if the next time your kid does something embarrassing, I'm talking to Sarah Fela right now, and I'm talking to Chris Fela, what if... The next time your kid does something embarrassing, you don't need to overreact to them because what other people think about your parenting doesn't really matter because you know who you are. No, that's not realistic. <laughs> that's never going to happen. What is the thing for you? What is the thing that if you really knew that you had nothing to prove, that you are already approved of, how would your life be different? If you knew that you had nothing to prove to anyone, if you had nothing to prove to the kids at school, if you had nothing to prove to your spouse or to your own kids, if you had nothing to prove in your workplace, if you had nothing to prove to the world, you knew that you were enough because the Father calls you the beloved. Would that change anything about the way you live? See, that's what's funny is the opposite of performance Christianity. Okay, just can we just have a little, I want to make sure that I'm not alone. Raise your hand if you've ever even dabbled in performance Christianity, where you've kind of put on the show, done the things, just to make sure that people know that you are a good Christian, right? Okay, so we've all been there. But how many of you have come over here, got tired of this, and actually burnt out? You just kind of, that's what happens when we're here too long. When we can't get enough, and that next thing always eludes us, we end up burning out. And so how many of you have bounced over here and thought, well, I guess the opposite of performance Christianity must be passive Christianity. I just need to be for a while. I just need to just sit and not do anything because I have nothing to prove. So I'm just going to hold myself up in my prayer closet and not pray. <laughs> I know not many of you really have prayer closets. I actually had a prayer closet in one of my houses. And, but can I tell you the embarrassing part? Why am I telling you this? My parents had just moved to a new house in Idaho, and it had four or five bedrooms, this, this huge house. Um, my parents moved every time I went away after uh, high school. It was like they were trying to get further and further away from me. They would never say that, but I think that's what was happening. But, so in my bedroom, in my new bedroom, I had a closet. I had a normal closet for clothes and stuff, and then I had this other little room. It was probably like six feet by six feet. And I'm like, what can I do with this six foot by six foot room? And I, I started having these pictures of like hanging a disco ball in it. And I don't know why. What are you going to do with a disco ball in a six foot? But I'm just telling you that's where my mind went for some reason. I know. That was just brilliant. Um, and one of my friends just looks at me and he's like, hey, dummy, why don't you make it a prayer closet? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> I knew that. And so I did. And it, it lasted like a week. But. But you know what I'm talking about, right? We get burnt out over here in performance Christianity, and so we bink, and we bounce over here to this thing that feels like passive Christianity. It's like, well, I have nothing to prove. I don't need to do anything to prove myself and earn God's love, so I'm not going to do anything, period. 
And so we go from burning out to fizzling out. And all of a sudden these things start to stir in us. We're like, I don't know what to do with that because I don't want to go back there. How many of you have ever had that thought? I don't want to do anything here because I don't want to get kicked back into this mode where I feel like I need to earn God's love by exteriors and by my behaviors. And so we don't have anywhere to land. And Jesus says, when you hear the voice that calls you the beloved, you're free to live a life that isn't passive and doesn't need to perform. You can take that if you need to. Um, you should answer and be like, hey, I'm at church. Put on speakerphone. <laughs> I think the way between these two extremes, I think the way between these two things is found in these places like Philippians 2. That's why Paul says in Philippians, Therefore, my beloved, my loved ones, just as you always obey me, not just when I'm present, but now even more while I'm away, work out or carry out. How many of you have been perplexed by this verse at some point in your life? Wait a minute, Ephesians just said it's not by works. And yet Paul is saying, now work it out. Carry out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now listen to this. God is the one who enables you both to want and to live out God's good purposes. It means that it's not about performance where we provide all the mojo, and it's not about passivity where we don't do anything, and it's not about bouncing back and forth. He's saying, let the love of God animate your good works. What might that look like? It might look like this. For Christ's love compels us that word has this meaning of urges, impels, moves forward. It's kind of like the motor of a car. For the love of Christ moves us forward because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live, period. <laughs> How many of us have gone there? should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Last verse. Ephesians 2.10. Now remember, we started off in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's, we've been saved by grace through faith. It's not by works so that no one should boast. We all have that verse memorized, right? That's hammered into you as soon as you start coming to church. It's nothing you do. Now will you do this and this and this and this and this? <laughs> It's nothing you do, but we have 18 sign-up sheets and 14 rolls to fill. <laughs> and God will like you a lot better if you do it. But we're not going to say that. We're just going to act like it. Right after Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, I'm not really cynical. I'm just sarcastic, okay? Um, a little bit cynical. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it's not by, not by works that you've been saved. It's by grace. And then it's so interesting that Paul tags this verse right on the other end of that. Why does he do this to us? Ephesians 2.10 is the one, you know the verse. For we are God's workmanship, created for good works in Christ. Wait, Chris, you're throwing us back into performance mode again because I thought you just said. You want to see a really cool translation? Now, really quick, we'll, we'll talk about this more in depth some other time. But The word workmanship I think we've talked about this before. The word workmanship in Greek is this word poema. P-O-I-E-M-A. Poema. It's where we get our English word poetry. Poem. 
we are God's poem. Now, we could take a few minutes and think about the nature of poetry and what poetry says about as an expression of the artist and its uniqueness and its rhythm and tones and its rises and falls and, and its beauty and individuality. We could take a lot of time talking about that. Maybe we will some other time. But listen to this translation of Ephesians 2.10 on the back side of it is not by works that you are saved. Instead, we are God's accomplishment created in Christ Jesus to do good things God planned for these good things to be the way that we live our lives guess what if you are an accomplishment you don't need to go try to accomplish because you are the thing you're trying to do you don't need to do what you are Except when you realize what you are, you naturally do what you are. That did not make any sense. <laughs> yes, it did, didn't it? <laughs> I just said it really clunkily. <laughs> I totally can't. That's why we record this. <laughs> you don't need... <laughs> you guys totally messed me up. I had no idea how I said that. How did we say it? No performance. I'm just going to sit here and not say a word. Um, we don't need to be what we think we are to become what we already are. But when we realize who we are, we will naturally do who we are. Right? So when we realize we are God's accomplishment, present perfect tense, like period, then we don't need to try to find things to full, feel a sense of accomplishment. Because we carry the sense of accomplishment internally. So how would that change things for us if it was all accomplished, and yet we just got to simply live loved? Who's ready for that? Who's ready to quit bouncing between bink, 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 bink? I am. Was that Lord of the Rings? <laughs> the shofar. Somebody is calling for reinforcements. <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> the elves are on their way. <laughs> I love it. That was so perfect. We planned that. We rehearsed that. <laughs> Who's with me? Kind of. We're trying to be with me. <laughs> Aren't we kind of like done just bouncing between performing and being passive? Wouldn't it be nice to just find our groove living out life as the beloved and simply be the accomplishment we are? 